So we have to kind of get to it this morning. Um, there's a lot to cover. Last week we spoke about the parable with ten lepers. Ten lepers were healed. One leper returned to praise Jesus. Not just to say thank you. He fell at his feet and praised God, praised Jesus. And we talked about the meaning of that and all of the things that can, that can connect with that. So what we are talking about right here immediately follows this. And it's Luke seventeen twenty. And I'm sorry, the, the, the type is kind of small and closely spaced on that scripture sheet. Uh, but that's the best I could do. <clears throat> uh, so we're going to begin there and uh, just, just read to begin with, read that entire passage. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus, as it was in the day, I'm sorry, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. A little bit uh, dark. So we're going to dig into this. So just in, in general, I believe most of us would agree that when someone asks us a question, how we interpret that question is by and large determined by the person asking that question. So what we have here is we have people that are asking Jesus questions all the time. There are two basic groups of people that ask Jesus questions. Actually, I guess we can say three, because the apostles, the disciples were always asking Jesus questions, which is a good thing. Then there were the other people out there that had heard about him. He had a following, and they would follow him, and they would begin to ask questions because they were curious. They, were, they wanted to know what the answers were to these questions. And there was a third group of people called the Pharisees. And they did not ask a question because they wanted to know what Jesus had to say. They asked questions to entrap Jesus because they had already made up their minds that he was a heretic that he blasphemed, 
and that he should be crucified. So I think this is an interesting thing. This is the question they asked. When is the kingdom of God going to come? This is what he says. It's going to be hard for you to understand. You're probably not going to get it. But the first scripture, he addresses his answer to the Pharisees. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that, you can be, that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in its midst. Now, what was the purpose of their question? Well, one of the offices that Jesus held was that of a prophet. I believe they were trying to lure him into prophesying as to when the earthly kingdom of God would come. Because that's what everyone is looking for, including the apostles, by the way. This is the kingdom of God that they think Jesus has come to establish. So I believe what's happening here is these Pharisees kind of got together and they said, let's ask him a question that no matter what he answers, there's a very small percentage that he will get it correct. So they asked this, when will the kingdom of God come? Because if he could be disproven as a faithful prophet, then his other offices would be in jeopardy as well. And they could begin to chip away at that. We read in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive opinions. They will even deny the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Even so, many will fall, uh, many will follow their licentious ways, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their condemnation pronounced against them long ago has not laid idle. Their destruction is not asleep. So they're trying to trap him into becoming a false prophet. Now here's a quick lesson. To receive Jesus as only one or two of his offices is not to receive the Savior. You must acknowledge and confess all three. Jesus, the Son of God, providing the perfect sacrifice. The priest, interceding on our behalf. The judge, he has full authority to pass judgment and uh, in and on all things. And king, the ultimate unchallenged ruler of all things. This is the Jesus we must receive in order to be saved. But as usual, his response to them was unsatisfactory and perplexing. But it was truthful. The kingdom by which, uh, of which they were inquiring was an earthly kingdom, a kingdom that they mistakenly believed would be established on earth, politically, militarily, and geographically in their lifetime. They believed their Messiah would come riding into Jerusalem, leaving, uh, leading a conquered, uh, leading to conquering Rome. The irony of this is that the kingdom of which they were hoping will indeed be established on earth eventually, politically, militarily, geographically, and spiritually. 
So what they're looking for is exactly what Christ is going to bring. They're just not looking for it in the right way. And this will take place when Christ returns coming down through the clouds and will look much different than they had thought. But Christ's answer left them frustrated and without ammunition to accuse him of anything with which they could further their case against him. So again, the answer, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. Then he makes this statement, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, as cryptic as this may have sounded to them, we must remember that these men had studied the law, including the prophecies, that told of their coming Messiah. So let's look at just a few of those scriptures. These men knew these scriptures. The coming Messiah, predicted in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, says he would be a descendant of Abraham. That was fulfilled in Matthew eleven twenty-seven and Luke three thirty-six. In Genesis twenty-six, we read this: he would be a descendant of Abraham's son Isaac. We say we see that confirmed in Romans nine seven, Hebrews eleven eighteen. Genesis 28, he would be a descendant of Isaac's son Jacob, Luke 3.34. Genesis 49, he would be a descendant of Jacob's son Judah, fulfilled in Matthew. Isaiah 11, 1-10, he would be a descendant of Jesse, a descendant of Judah. Matthew 1, 2, and 3, Isaiah 11, 1, he would be a descendant of Jesse's son, King David, fulfilled in Matthew 1, 1. So the very heritage of the Messiah that they had been studying was established through Jesus Christ. So this should not have been lost on them. We also see that many have seen prophecies come to pass, and they should have been well aware of this, including the prophecy concerning John the Baptist, which happened in their lifetime and his mission and ministry. Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice is calling clear. Uh, I'm sorry, a voice is calling, Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for God. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, Adonai, whom whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is a prophecy concerning John the Baptist. And of course, we know in John the Baptist, or we know that John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. In John 1, 32 through 34, it says this, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. All of this was available to the Pharisees. So all the people of all the people that should have gotten it, you would think it would have been the Jewish leadership. But again, the motive of the Pharisees was different. So they couldn't see it. Because they wanted to use Jesus as a pawn to continue their reign. They wanted to get rid of him, really. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is about much more than things seen, such as land, or power, or riches, or politics, and freedom. 
The riches of His kingdom are not dependent upon your circumstances. Isn't that good? Whether they be good or bad, whether they be financial or love or love lost, deep, meaningful relationships or utter loneliness, the kingdom of God is not dependent for your sake upon these things. It is about becoming a new creation. It's about eternity. It is about peace that passes understanding right where you are and in any situation. He is saying in his own way, if you don't get it while I am in your presence, then you never get it. It is absolutely possible, family, that when you are ministering to someone for the sake of their salvation... And you're giving everything you have and you are trying to persuade them. If you give them the gospel, there is nothing more you can give to persuade them. If the gospel is not adequate, they are already lost. It is absolutely possible the person whom you are trying to persuade will never hear the gospel. You are speaking to one that will reject Jesus anyway. So doesn't that bring us to an interesting question? Why bother? Because we don't know. Number one. Number two, because God says, share the gospel. Share my gospel. That's the other reason we bother. It's out of obedience if nothing else. So the same thing is true in our own culture, is it not? And in our personal lives. We are in Christ's presence through the Holy Spirit, just like they were in Christ's presence by the presence of Christ. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So they're in the presence of Christ and they're not getting it. We are in the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit and we don't get it, depending on who you are. So our culture is the same. And we continue to offer the same kingdom today as He offered back then. It's not a cultural kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. And yet the vast majority of the human family remains blinded by their own philosophies, man-made religions, and ambitions. And if they can't get it with what God is offering them right now, they never will. They're already doomed. So the Pharisees asked him what they believed to be a cunning question to trip him up. And in one sentence, he silences them. The kingdom is not what you think. You can't say it's over here, you can't say it's over there. But behold, the kingdom of God's with you right now. It is already here in me. I am the kingdom of heaven. I am him. And then he immediately turns back to his disciples. See, I love picturing these scenes sometimes. I mean, I don't know if they're totally accurate the way I picture them. But you know, Jesus has just healed ten lepers. And one comes back and worships. 
right? And then some Pharisees, and I'm not sure if there was time in between that or not. It's really hard to tell. It may have been a few minutes. It may have been a few days. We don't know. But the next time we pick up what Jesus is doing, we have Pharisees that are setting a trap for him. And he says, tell us, when is, it, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And he, you know, Jesus is going, oh, this is easy. So he gives this answer, and then he immediately turns back to his disciples. It's almost like this question that the, the, uh, the Pharisees gave to him, and the answer he gave was kind of like he's just flotting us, you know, he's shooing a fly off of his shoulder. And then he turns to his disciples, and he says something really important here. And he said to the disciples, his 12 friends, and one's a devil, right? We know that. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. I I believe what Jesus is saying to the twelve. Jesus knows where he's heading. Now, do you remember from last week? He's basically in Jezreel Valley, where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. And then he gets these other questions. He heals the lepers, and he gets these other questions. And I think that perhaps he's walking through the Jezreel Valley. Then he gets a question about the kingdom of God. And maybe he's going, I know what's going to happen here. And he turns to his disciples and he says, you know, guys, the days are coming when you will look back on these three years. And you will long for them. You will long for them again. Aren't we this way? Something that starts to be fantastic and stunning, if we see it enough, we get comfortable with it. Maybe that happened with the twelve. They're walking with Jesus for three years. They're seeing miracles. They're seeing healings. They're seeing all kinds of things. They hear Jesus giving answers. They see him rebuke people. They see him hug people and weep. They see him, they see him heal lepers. And Jesus gets this question from the Pharisees, and I think he looks at his twelve and he goes, You know, guys, there's gonna come a time when you're gonna look back on this and you're gonna long for it. And I think those words really stung them later in life. Not even in a bad way. But I bet they remembered what he said. And I bet they were thinking, oh, Lord, you have no idea. Of course he does. But it was a unique, special dispensation, which is a kind of time when something happens that doesn't happen in another time. So here, here, was, here was what was happening. In in front of these guys' eyes, God appearing in human form, one of the members of the Trinity, born to a virgin, becoming a laborer, a common man, a carpenter by trade, who was 100% human and 100% God, walked among them, was baptized, thus beginning a three-year earthly ministry which led to his suffering and death on a cross, which is where they were headed. 
who was then raised from the dead three days later, walked among them again and ascended into heaven where he is seated right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those who have confessed their sin, repented from their sins, acknowledging Jesus as the only Son of God so that they can receive him as their God and Savior. What a miraculous time in history. God descended and walked among them. Little did disciples realize how much these words would sting them in the remaining years. The days are coming, he said, when you will long to see one of these days again. And then he gave them a warning and a prophecy. In verse 23, And they, meaning false teachers and false messiahs, the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, will say to you, Look there, or look here, And then he instructs them, do not go out or follow them. Now, we know that Jesus did return, right? But he sought out the apostles. He sought out the disciples. He would appear, he would minister to them, and then he would disappear. What Jesus is talking about here is represented in Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. This is a very important scripture. We're going to get to it a little bit later in a little more detail. In Luke 17.24, the, the very next verse, he says this, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So he's saying, this is how you're going to know it's me that's returning. The lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, and be watching. I think it's easy for us to read these words and miss the majesty of this future event. This event will be heart-stopping. Jesus is talking about His return from glory. Let's look at it a little more carefully. The lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other. In the book of Job, we have an account of God rebuking Job for his arrogance by asking some very pointed questions, as in, Why me, Lord? He'd been through 37 chapters of incredible difficulty and people encouraging him to ask why me, encouraging him to confess the sin that caused all these things to happen to him. That's another sermon altogether. But finally, at one point, Job says, okay, why? And God gives a litany of stinging rebukes to him. But one of them we want to read today, or a couple of them, because it has to do with this. So this is God asking Job what makes him think he is worthy of challenging God. Job 37, 1-4 says this, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Give you an idea of what the voice of God sounds like? Job's finding that out. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. 
God owns the lightning. His lightning. His voice. Psalm seventy-seven, eighteen. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world, and the earth trembled and shook. Psalm 97, 4. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. Jesus says, you'll know when I'm returning because the lightning will go, will, will light up the sky. He owns the lightning. God knows where the lightning is stored. Job 38, 24. What is the way to place where the light is? Or the lightning is distributed? Or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? And God alone commands the lightning. Job 38, 34 says this, Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Job thirty-seven fifteen. Do you know how God lays His command upon them and causes the lightning of His cloud to shine? Jesus says, When I return, this is a majestic event. This is a godly event. The elements upon which you depend are stirred by me and me alone. Lightning is symbolic of God's judgment. Zechariah 9.14 Then the Lord will appear over them and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. And finally in Revelation... Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Jesus is making a statement to his disciples that they will have no problem recognizing his second coming. Men will faint. Continues his prophecy, Luke seventeen twenty five. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So unbeknownst to his disciples, this final journey is his final journey. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're kind of going back and forth. He's doing miracles wherever he, he feels he needs to do those miracles. But he's on his way to Jerusalem to the cross. He has a cross in mind. It's in his crosshairs. He's saying, look, first, before all of this happens, you twelve, he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. And so he would understand it, so they wouldn't understand it even more. He drew parallels. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on, this, uh, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. It's going to be like that. What are the circumstances that lie within these scriptures? What are the consistencies that lie within these scriptures? Well, the first consistency we see is it says in the day of Noah and the days of Lot. These are two dates that catastrophic things happen on a biblical level. These two events. The second is, he says, so, it, so will it be. It will be like these two things. This is how it's going to be. 
Third consistency is in the days of the Son of Man. This represents a messianic involvement. And the fourth consistency in these two events is the behavior of the people during the days of the Son of Man. We're going someplace with this, trust me. What do we look for so that we may discover if we are in the days of the Son of Man? He gives the answer in the next few words of the following verses. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, plant and planting and building. So despite the warnings and prophecies given, people were living life as they always did. Noah was not only the builder of an ark, he was an evangelist. Genesis 6.3, some scholars say that's proof that Noah evangelized, preached for 120 years. What was the end result? Eight people believed. 120 years, they heard the gospel. Why didn't more people listen? What had blinded them? Well, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage and buying and selling and planning and building. They were living life. They were doing everything that was normal. Until when? When did that stop? When did they listen? When did they finally confess and repent? Until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and what? Destroyed them all. And on the day, on the day of Lot, when Lot went out from Sodom, when God rescued Lot from Sodom and his family, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And he says, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He's not talking about that back then. He's talking us. See, when, when Christ returns, it will be unmistakable. The sky will light up like lightning going from east to west in milliseconds. I think it's going to be terrifying for people who don't know Jesus. I think they're going to realize this isn't normal lightning. This isn't a hurricane. This isn't a tornado. This isn't a thunderstorm. This is something altogether different. Humanity will be dumbfounded and spiritually asleep just as they have always been. They will be carrying on with that which seems so important at the time. Can I just say we will be carrying on with that which seems so important at the time. We will be feasting and drinking and making investments and selling and upgrading and going to church, but it will all end. And for most people, it will not end very well. There is nothing you can do to change my will. When push comes to shove, this is exactly what will happen. God says you can't change what I said will happen. 
And then Jesus goes on in verse 31, On that day let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding wheat. One will be taken and the other left. Jesus is speaking figuratively here to impress upon us the urgency and the significance of his words. When Jesus returns, no man will behold him and then repent. That's important to know. When he returns, what does Hebrews say? He's not coming back for the sin problem. He's coming back to take those home who have received him. Do not fool yourselves into thinking, if I recognize that lightning is different, based upon this passage, that's when I will receive Jesus Christ. No man will receive the glorified Jesus. No man will see the glorified Jesus and be saved. It's all too late. Are we currently living in the day of the Son of Man? Well, maybe we're not living in such an, uh, uh, an urgent time. Does something else have to happen before Christ's return? Now, depending on your theology, yes and no. Can I just tell you, no one theology really knows the whole answer. It's okay to claim a theology. It's okay to believe in, in what, the, what the theology is teaching. I'm all, that's fine. But no one truly knows. Some would say, well, until something is built, Jesus can't return. So what are the indicators that we are living in? Time of the Son of Man. 2 Timothy 3, 1-9 says, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. We will be religious. I have met some people who don't know Jesus that are far more self-disciplined than people that I do know who know Jesus. They will have a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is. There the vultures will gather, verse 37. Matthew twenty four forty four. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the question is, are we ready? Well, I have to really pose that as a personal question. Are you ready? Or have we been deceived? Here's the good news. You can know the truth and not fear the return of Christ. You can look forward to seeing the lightning flashing across the sky and be rejoicing. 
as he returns. The anxiety you have as to where you spend eternity can be solved this morning. It takes faith. You receive Jesus now. What about us believers? What are we to do? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When I was in my teens, I had a, a, good, a lot of people who were my friends in school. Some of them were what we lovingly recalled Jesus freaks back then. They said, praise God about every other word, every third word, and hallelujah, every second word. And they were always after me. Always after me. And my mom and dad had taught me never to be rude. Obviously, I haven't really followed that in my life at times. They taught me to be kind, and so I was kind, and they just after me, after me, after me. They took me to church. They took me to youth group. And uh, see, my problem was I was really content in life as a teenager. Uh, I, God spared me some of the pitfalls, alcohol and drugs and all that, and, uh, and other things. He spared me of that. And I had a mom and dad that loved me, and I was doing music, and that was my identity. You know, I had a little band. We went out and played every weekend, pool parties and all that stuff. We thought we were, you know, the Beatles, and of course we weren't. I was content. And they kept saying, you need Jesus. And I go, why? And you know they had a hard time answering that. They were young like me. They could not help me see beyond tomorrow or next year or when I graduated from high school, and as long as everything went okay, why bother? You know how I saw Christianity? Rules. Rules, that's what I saw. So as a non-believer, I'm being told that I need to come in to the church where I can be judged more. See, that didn't even make sense to me. No matter what they would have said, I wouldn't have received Christ until God touched me. But they used, he used all of them. Every one of them he used. I still look back on those times and I go, you know, obviously, now I see what they were trying to tell me. He used every one of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbors yourself. These two things describe who we are to be. So to receive Jesus, it's this way. At some point you have to look at yourself and you have to be able to say, I'm not the best person or I'm not a good person or I have these issues. I'm trapped. 
I'm imprisoned, whatever that may be. You have to be able to look at yourself and say, this is not, this is not good. I don't want to, this is going, not going someplace good. And if you, can, if you can confess that, I'm not the answer for me. That's confession. And then God says, confess that to him. It's just done in a prayer. Lord, I confess to you, I don't have the answers. And I have this sin in my life, and it's killing me. And then to be able to go to that same Jesus and say, and so God, because of that, I think, I think you're the answer to that. And because of that, I want to turn away from what I'm doing. I don't want that to be me anymore. I want you to make a new me. And bring me into your family. And then there's another step. And I don't, I don't like to talk about salvation and steps, but this is what it is. And then there comes a time when you just have to really say, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you're the only Son of God. And I'm giving you everything. I'm laying everything I have down, and I just want you to do with me what you want to do. And I know the only way you can do that is for me to receive you as my Lord and Savior. If you say those things to God, out loud or otherwise, and you pray that prayer, it's called salvation. It doesn't take a baptism. It doesn't take coming forward. I think both those things are good, by the way. It's just a conversation you have. And finally this. How are we to live as believers? What steps can we take? It's very simply this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And why do we want to do that? Because here's the promise. Because then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is for you. His good and pleasing and perfect will. It says Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the night.